This is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Well, how does $400 sound to fill up your gas tank? Sounds pretty good, actually. <laughs> Some Democrats in Over what period of time? <laughs> uh, I don't I presume all at once. Some Democrats, we're going to find out. That's what out. it costs to fill up one tank these <laughs> yeah. days. Some Democrats in uh, Sacramento are proposing a $400 rebate to all California taxpayers because of high gas prices. Now, this is apparently uh, a counter to the Republican idea of suspending the gas tax. We'll go in depth into how lawmakers are looking to help people get a break at the gas pump. Oh, are your allergies acting up again? If they are, you could be in for more suffering soon, and it's all because of climate change. We'll explain that one. Streaming services looking to become everyone's main source of entertainment. Amazon's acquisition of MGM could speed up that goal. We will go in-depth into the war in Ukraine again. Disinformation battle could be just as important as some of the fighting on the ground. President Biden calls Vladimir Putin a war criminal. We'll get into whether the president can just declare somebody a war criminal and what that might mean when dealing with Russia. And uh, we head to Ukraine to talk with a doctor there who's at a hospital getting ready just in case it has to treat numerous wounded civilians. We begin with that proposal for a $400 gas rebate for all Californians. With us is Republican Assemblymember Kevin Kiley from the Sacramento area. Thanks for being with us. So this is, uh, as I understand it, mostly a Democratic proposal, but where are you on this? Well, I mean, it's uh, actually kind of shocking to see them propose uh, anything that uh, offers uh, any measure of of tax relief. Uh, I've been in the legislature five years, and it's pretty much uh, unheard of. So that's good. I mean, I'm uh, I'm, uh, encouraged by that. Uh, however, it's no substitute for suspending the gas tax. And it's kind of they've managed to conflate these two things. You know, we uh, I have a bill to suspend the gas tax entirely. We have record uh, just shocking gas prices in California. This would offer uh, immediate relief, 51 cents a gallon. Uh, but they voted this proposal down on Monday. And then folks started hearing from their constituents uh, who were very angry about that vote. And so this is what they decided to do is throw together this $400 tax rebate proposal, which, again, that's great. That's actually what you should do when you have a surplus like we do now is return the money to the taxpayers. But uh, that would have to be in addition uh, to the most immediate and direct and meaningful relief we can provide, which is uh, just to suspend the gas tax. Entirely. Well, well is, is the notion that the Democrats have that the 400, because as I understand it, would go to everybody, whether they have a car or not, so they could use that money, for example, for mass transit, whereas if you reduced the uh, or got rid of the uh, the uh, gasoline tax, it would benefit those with cars when they get gas, but not necessarily those who take mass transit. Well, it's people who are driving cars right now who are feeling the pain of these record high gas prices. So uh, the whole point uh, is that we want to provide uh, relief from that. And that's even how they have framed this, is they're saying that this needs to be done uh, to compensate for, uh, you know, the pain people are feeling at the pump. And but, they're so, giving it to uh, every, but they want to give it to everybody, right? Right, exactly. So that's why it makes no sense, uh, is that it's not uh, actually uh, aligned with uh, what the problem is. With, if you suspend the gas tax, then you provide relief that is commensurate with the pain people are feeling. For example, people who have no choice uh, but to drive a long distance to work or uh, in rural areas where they're 
Maybe there isn't access to mass transit, so they're having to drive great distances. Uh, this provides relief to them that is commensurate with the amount of time they have to spend driving the extra money they're having to pay now. If their plan goes through, and this this is the one that we do, if we do the 400 bucks, when could people end up getting that? I mean, are they waiting for, like, May revise time? Because then we're into June by the time anybody gets a check. Or can they put this through fast? Well, they're saying as part of the budget, so, you know, that'd be June, and then who knows how long it's going to take them to, to get everything processed and have those checks win their way through the bureaucracy. So if you're someone who's struggling right now just to get by week to week, this kind of vague promise of maybe getting a check at some point in the future isn't a whole lot of help. But if you got your 400, would you keep it? Would, would, would I keep my 400? Yes. Well, I mean, yeah. I'm a taxpayer. I'm overtaxed just like everyone else. Okay. The folks should get their money back. You get it, I have you no use problem it, right? with that. All right. Republican <laughs> Assemblymember Kevin Kiley up there in Sacramento. Right now, though, scientists have been warning about climate change problems like rising sea levels and more wildfires. But there's another problem researchers from the University of Michigan say people need to worry about a longer allergy season. With us is University of Utah biologist and climate scientist Bill Andreg. He has read the study. Also with us is Dr. William Harris, an allergist at Providence St. Joseph's Hospital in Orange. Doctors, both uh, thanks for being with us. Uh, let's start with you, uh, Dr. Andreg. Uh, you read the study. Uh, are you impressed by what it says, and are you convinced that because of climate change, we're in for a rough ride if we have allergies and asthma? Yeah, well, thanks for having me. I, I am quite impressed by this study. It's a very rigorous and detailed study. And, uh, you know, it, it makes a lot of sense in that we've really um, expected that climate change is going to make pollen seasons longer and more severe. And actually, we see that in the data already. So my group published a study last year across the U.S. showing that allergy seasons are starting about three weeks earlier and are about 20 percent, have about 20 percent more pollen in the air already. Is it just that uh, there's more blooms that are happening or are some of the different allergens now overlapping? What's the, the mechanism that we're going to see that is going to make this all so terrible for so many of us? Yeah, there's really two main mechanisms. First is that as temperatures warm up, plants really start the pollen season earlier. And that's something that we've seen in, in thousands of species across the world. Uh, and plants do seem to grow a little bigger and produce a little more pollen on average. So that's the second pathway. Okay, so uh, Dr. Harris, you're an allergist. What are you seeing at the clinical level? Well, of course, all allergists know that the disease is driven by pollen. When there's no pollen in the air, you know, the disease is basically absent. And when the pollen counts explode, the symptoms explode in severity. So all allergists are, you know, can, can basically tell the pollen counts by the patients coming into the office. I mean, when we see great increased frequency of rhinitis, great increased frequency of asthma, we know pollen counts are high. And that not only happens on a macro scale, that happens on a micro scale. I mean, you can have from day-to-day variations, if winds are high, pollen counts rise, you'll see a short-term spike in symptoms. But what we're talking about with these studies is something that is much more prolonged and it's going to happen every single year. Now, allergy sufferers know that when uh, weather conditions promote high pollen, their symptoms are worse. But we're talking now about this happening every year. Pollen counts 20 days earlier. You're going to see a lot more morbidity. You know, and I think that's going to happen across the country. Okay, so actual like 
public health consequences because of just how prolonged and how much worse this is going to be for people. And what are people to do? I mean, if you're already popping your Benadryl every day, uh, what more is there to be done if it gets way worse than it already is? Well, obviously, I think allergists are going to have to be proactive. I think we'll have to be anticipating an earlier start to the pollen season. I think there's going to be greater need for medication. Uh, but, uh, you know, obviously the burden of disease is going to increase substantially. Uh, you know, if, if your pollen season's 20 days earlier and it ends 20 days later, remember, they're not just talking about the season starting earlier. They're also talking about the season ending later. So you're talking about that's almost a 10% increase. So, you know, the day you know, we have 365 days in the year. If you're, if you're having a pollen season start 20 days earlier and end 20 days later, then you're talking about 10% of the year. That's a huge increase, really. So, Dr. Andreg, back to you. Is there anything that can be done within, I don't know, our lifetimes to reverse this? Or are we locked into this sort of downward uh, spiral until the climate, hopefully at some point in the future, gets back on track? You know, that's a great question and something this new study actually addresses um, directly. The, the bad news is we are locked into some amount of increasing pollen uh, seasons and severity. The good news is that a huge amount of the future is in our control, actually, that uh, acting to tackle climate change quickly and robustly has these huge benefits that we could avoid half or more of the projected pollen um, worsening. So there is, there's a huge amount that's in our control at a, at a large scale. University of Utah biologist, climate scientist, Bill Anderegg, and uh, Dr. William Harris, allergist, Providence St. Joseph's in Orange. And coming up, President Biden called Vladimir Putin a war criminal, but does the president have the right to convict Putin of such a high crime? And we will head to Ukraine, where one hospital is canceling surgeries and moving patients out in order to prepare for a possible attack. Right now, though, streaming services becoming a much larger part of the media entertainment world. Everybody has one or, I don't know, five. Amazon is closing its $8.5 billion acquisition of uh, MGM. Hopes have taken over as a dominant force in this uh, streaming battle. With us is Todd Spangler, Variety's digital editor. Todd, thanks for being here. So everybody wants to be like the landing page, right? When you turn on your smart TV, what's the first one you click on? For a lot of people, that's Netflix, just because we, oh, I'll Netflix something. It's kind of like Googling something, right? But Amazon, with this move, is, is trying to, to get their name up there, right? Uh, well, absolutely. You know, Amazon is, has always been looking for um, top-tier content. And, um, you know, they buy uh, a very rich catalog of uh, famous movies with uh, the deal to buy MGM. And... Uh... By buying all of that, it's not just the catalog, right? I mean, they have plans, I, I suspect, to also do what? Uh, uh, TV series, things like that, based on characters. Wizard that of Oz, yeah, too. The, yeah, <laughs> Wizard of Oz. <laughs> yes. Return to Oz, yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. they, they can do that by buying all of MGM, right? Yes. But, you know, Jeff Bezos said it uh, maybe the best in, in terms of their rationale for buying MGM is that they want to take this a uh, huge library of stuff and reinvent it for 21st century audiences. That's, that's how he put it. So they do see this as, you know, um, uh, really fodder for creating more original stuff that they're going to put on Amazon Prime Video. 
What does it mean for your traditional theatrical releases? And the last couple of years have been all crazy because of COVID, but there are some places that are still sticking to very, no, 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 it's going to go to theaters. James Bond is separate from this. That's one that's still going to go to the big screens, right? Yes. The, uh, the production company that, uh, that, that owns the James Bond franchise essentially has locked in rights to have first theatrical run. Um, you know, Amazon had been a little more friendly about releasing their original movies into theaters, but lately they've been putting their movies first on Prime Video, not in theaters. And part of that has to do with the pandemic. But um, yeah, we'll see, you know, going forward, how much of MGM Slate really um, does end up in the theaters versus just ends up in Amazon's pockets. Now, of course, we're inching ever so closer to the Academy Awards. And uh, aren't like most of the major contenders produced by streaming companies? Uh, well, yes, that's right. Um, you know, once again, Netflix picked up, um, picked up a, a good number of nominations here. And Apple's been nominated for uh, CODA film. Um, and, you know, part of, again, part of this is due to uh, the delay in production uh, in the movie industry um, during the COVID pandemic. But, you know, what it really shows, I think, is that uh, the streamers are able to do these sort of prestige titles and um, make them work in terms of the economics in a way that maybe some traditional movie studios can't. Are people seeing them as much? I mean, it used to be you missed uh, some of the ones on the Oscars just because you didn't go to the movies and see it. But now yeah. if you haven't hunted around or you don't have all the different services, I mean, you could easily miss one of these big films. I think that's a big advantage is that, um, you know, Netflix has an instant global platform to promote the, the power of the dog. You know, we got 12 Oscar nominations, most of any film this year. It's, um, you know questionable whether you know there's a really art housey slow burn type of a picture that um, maybe wouldn't have gotten that kind of attention and released through uh, traditional channels does it matter do you think to the viewing public are, are they getting something different in terms of product depending upon who's producing the product, as opposed to the old-time movie companies, now it's the new-time streaming companies? Or is it pretty much the same stuff? Well, they're working, you know, it's Jane Campion, who's a well-known uh, filmmaker who made Power of the Dog. And, um, you know, the, the, streamer, the streamers, you know, Netflix, Amazon, uh, Disney, you name it, they are all working with um, the top-tier industry talent. Uh, and really increasing competition to win the deals uh, for the creative folks who are well-known in the industry, have a proven track record. Um, you know, you've got Adam McKay making Don't Look Up. Um, and, you know, it's, it's really, you know, the kinds of movies you would expect to see in your art house movie theater. But now they're available right at the click of a button on your TV. Todd Spangler, Variety's digital editor. Todd, thanks. You know, no. the TV side, we're getting a whole lot more Star Wars and Star Trek. So, yeah, But, you know, <laughs> but the whole thing was, you know, people were complaining about cable, everything being bundled, stuff right. I don't really want, how expensive it and is. Now you all think streaming services. But it, it's going to be just as expensive, maybe mm -hmm. even more expensive, yeah. right? 
So where did we end up? <laughs> Paying <Bill>. more, like <laughs> always. Oh, it doesn't <laughs> seem right. This is KNX In-Depth with Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. Deception has been a major part of warfare for centuries. It's one of the most important elements to win a war, and it comes in all different kinds of forms. In modern times, deception comes uh, as disinformation to the media and the public. We're hearing a lot of conflicting reports, for example, out of Ukraine about Russian casualties, troop movements, morale, whether Russian troops really are targeting civilians, what is and isn't true, and does it matter? With us is Tom Amenta, former U.S. Army Ranger, special ops veteran, and co-author of the book, The Twenty-Year War, which documents the U.S. war on terror. Tom, thanks for being with us. How do we know uh, when, as they say, the fog of war has has descended, uh, how do we actually know what we're hearing from any side is true? Well, the, I mean, the short answer is you're never quite 100 percent. I think that one of the things that I always point out, especially when it comes to conflict and crisis PR managers will tell you the same thing, is that usually in the first 24 hours of any major event or crisis, usually they say about half the things that you're being told or can be reported are wrong. It's just and there's generally speaking, not bad actors to it. It's just that things are coming so quickly. Things are changing so fast. People are trying to get on top of and get a handle of things. And you certainly that type of thing is only magnified in a war zone. What I think is really interesting about this conflict is that how very clearly both sides are incented right now to spread information that helps them. Are, we, I was just, just going to say, are things even more complicated now with social media? Because you can just put anything out there and it can spread as fast as, as it can all over the place. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. 100%. And that's one of the, the new wrinkles and the new facets. This is truly... Uh, the first, what I would call modern war fought with social media as a presence. And what I mean by that is that Afghanistan and Iraq were always considered by, you know, military strategists, low intensity conflicts. It wasn't sort of that nation on nation state. We were fighting a counterterrorism campaign, which is really fighting against an idea. Right now you have two, na two nations that are both not only trying to rally their troops that are fighting and rally the support of their people, but rally the support of the world. And so these the ability to put out information and, and try and control that narrative can try and control that truth literally at the speed of light through like you said social media is a new facet to warfare and there really hasn't been a precedent for this sort of two nation fight up until now so other than uh, having a, a healthy sense of skepticism are there little i don't know clues that maybe you look for when you read about different reports uh, that raise the the flag in your mind Yes, absolutely. One of the first things that I, I like to look for, especially having been, you know, a, a former soldier and things like that, is look at what the look at what the videos are that are coming out and how they're edited, right? Um, you know, you you can make you can make a, a battle look really good if you start the ambush and blow up three tanks, but then the tanks figure out where you are, you know, um, and just sort of you know disrupt your ambush and really disrupt the things that you're doing. So, how are things edited and where is something that I look for? Um, the other thing is just trying to piece together things from different news sources when possible for all of the talk in the Western world about fake news. Um, and we've mentioned earlier sort of social media's ability to spread some, you know, some, some lies or some falsehoods. Generally speaking, most major news outlets, whatever their political bias is one way or the other, they generally are trying to get to um, 
what's really going on. So as you start seeing something of the consistent picture, when you look at just because of the majors, if MSNBC, CNN, and Fox News are all more or less reporting 80% of the same thing, um, you know, or if you have sort of like local things, you know, the BBC in this case, or, you know, Agency Free Press or Reuters and the Associated Press as they're all sort of covering this, I try and look for what the consistent threads coming out of those are rather than focusing on some of the minutiae just to get to the broad picture because especially in this conflict the final thing is is that we're seeing reporters being targeted right now by the russians um you know fox news has had two reporters killed uh the there was a documentary filmmaker who brought an old new york times press credential the times has since said that he was not working for them but you know to, to have access and he was you know he was unfortunately killed so it's trying to find those macro ideas across uh, sources because we have limited information and limited people on the ground uh, in order to cover this. So those are the things I look for the most. Should you also be careful what any official is saying, even if you know your allegiances kind of lie with them? Because I think an example of this maybe was when the power plant was was being shot at and, and the Ukrainian mm-hmm. officials came out and said, this could be 10 times worse than Chernobyl. And, and not long after that, a whole bunch of nuclear scientists said, OK, no, everybody calm down. Not a great idea to shoot at a power plant, um, but also it's not going to just explode. So that's the very 24-hour, first 20 minutes things that, that, you, were, mm-hmm. that you were talking about. No, absolutely. And that's the thing is, like, there always has to be discernment because everybody – no one's neutral in this. Everybody has an angle. And so, uh, you know, and I'm, I'll be really clear. I'm, I'm very pro-Ukraine in this. I, you know, from some of the Russian propaganda that I've seen, I would – you know, I've called that. But I've also seen – um, through friends of mine and connections with the military of what the the Ukrainian military is saying as far as casualties. And they're reporting 14,000, you know, Russian soldiers killed. Whereas you look at, you know, things from sort of the Western press or other organizations, they've got it anywhere from about six to 10,000, you know, that have been, you know, that up to you have been killed, which is a significant number. And I'm in no way, shape or form trying to cheapen that loss of human life. But it does show one side trying to show a much bigger win, if you will, at almost 10% of the fighting force that has been, you know, deployed into that as opposed to something that could be closer to 5%, which is a pretty significant delta. Tom Amenta, former U.S. Army Ranger, Special Ops veteran, co-author of the book, The 20-Year War, documents a U.S. war on terror. Tom, thanks. President Biden may have caused a diplomatic stir when he made this quick comment about Russian leader Vladimir Putin. Oh, I I, I think he is a war In case you missed it, the president said he thinks Putin is a war criminal. Now, that statement might make dealing with Russia that much more difficult. White House had been trying to avoid the term. Presidents can't just declare somebody a war criminal. There's a long process to the whole thing. But um, can that process be carried out against Putin? With us is David Crane, heads the Global Accountability Network. He's worked on war crimes for decades, prosecuted uh, former Liberian president Charles Taylor. David, thanks for being with us. So it it was with everything in life, or most things, there are specifics here, right? Uh, You can say that Vladimir Putin is doing awful things and call him a war criminal, but there's more to it than that. It is, and great to, great to be with you this afternoon. Uh, you know, what uh, President Biden did was uh, throw the uh, political gauntlet down. Uh, he looked at it from a more of a layman point of view of just a war, war criminal. Uh, obviously, uh, it remains to be seen uh, whether he's a war criminal in a court of law, and that is something that we do. But, uh, you know, what he's doing is he's ramping up the pressure, uh, letting, focusing the world on the fact that what he's doing in Ukraine is horrific, and uh, he's uh, he's did that for uh, on purpose. Uh, he has formally said that I, I believe he's a war criminal. So it's, it's not something that will complicate things. I mean, how more complicated could it be, guys? 
so the bottom line is is that uh, it was for he was just uh, sending him notice that uh, he supports any kind of efforts like uh, what we're doing in uh, investigating and then uh, potentially uh, prosecuting him for uh, war crimes, crimes against humanity, and acts of aggression. Well, here's one way, though, I I suppose it could get more complicated down the road. Uh, At some point, uh, hopefully, this war will end, but Mr. Putin may be around for quite some time thereafter. How does a president of the United States, whether it's Mr. Biden or maybe a future president, if Putin is still there, how, from an optics point of view, do you deal with somebody in another country, head of state, who has already been deemed by the president of the United States, no less, to be a war criminal? Well, you know, it's uh, yeah, it is. Uh, you know, this type of business that uh, that I'm in, uh, modern international criminal law, where we do, in fact, investigate, indict, and prosecute heads of state and their and their henchmen. You know, there's uh, politics is all part of this. But the bottom line is, is when you commit an international crime before the world, uh, we just can't walk away for political reasons. Uh, and say, well, you know, it's uh, you know, it's it's proverbial justice before peace or peace before justice. The bottom line is he's uh, tearing Ukraine apart. And so the bottom line is he is going to uh, be investigated uh, for war crimes. And uh, frankly, I, I I believe that within the year he will be an indicted war criminal for the rest of his life. Yeah. Take us through that process and how it actually works and, and what are the, you know, the odds that this will actually go all the way with him. How, how do you even get that to happen when somebody's a president of a country? Well, that's great. You know, and, and again, all good questions. And it's important for your listeners to understand, you know, modern international criminal law, which I'm one of the founders, began about 25 years ago. And we've developed uh, the experience, the jurisprudence, the law, uh, as well as rules of procedure and evidence to, in fact, uh, investigate, uh, indict and prosecute uh, sitting heads of state for, uh, for acts that they, uh, they do uh, while in office. And so we do have uh, now that four corners uh, experience to do that. So how, how does that happen? Well, one is you have to have a court of uh, an appropriate jurisdiction. Uh, the International Criminal Court has opened what we call a preliminary investigation related to war crimes and crimes against humanity. And that is ongoing. Also, the United Nations is uh, coming together. There was over 141 nations uh, around the world condemning what Putin has done. And so the next logical step is to uh, to agree to uh, uh, support a court who would prosecute him for uh, for the crime of aggression. And that's what we're working on now quietly in the background uh, to do that. Once, once that happens, or if the International Criminal Court uh, moves forward under their statute, uh, they can issue an indictment for war crimes and crimes against humanity at the appropriate time. Uh, likewise, this potential new uh, UN uh, court that would be looking at aggression would be doing the same uh, kind of thing. So it's all done under law, fairly openly and ethically. Uh, and uh, we, like I said, uh, we're pretty good at this now, and uh, we've been doing it for 25 years. So uh, you know, we uh, we just have to have the authority, uh, the appropriate legal authority from the United Nations, uh, green light, so to speak. And we uh, we can make that happen if, let's say, uh, he is indicted, uh, Putin, and is tried. Uh, presumably, he won't be at the trial, but he's tried and then convicted. What happens to him, if anything? Well, the bottom line is we won't uh, uh, we don't have trials in absentia at the international level. Uh, we would uh, uh, we would uh, investigate, uh, and if there was appropriate uh, case against him, we would indict him. Uh, for the crime of aggression, and the International Criminal Court would indict him for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And what happens then is that indictment stands. He, 
uh, we wouldn't move any, uh, any far forward until he's actually handed over to us in person. That may take uh, five, six, seven, eight years. It's important that uh, your listeners understand that uh, uh, once you are uh, commit international crimes, there's no statute of limitations. So, uh, you, know, you know, until he dies, he will be uh, potentially an indicted war criminal uh, to be handed over uh, when there's an, a political moment by which that can happen. But we don't try people in absentia. So he's indicted. That indictment stands and will stand for the rest of his life. So that was the answer, though, there at the end. You wait for that political moment if it happens. That's the only way to get right. him. Well, you know, it is. You know, at the bottom line is, is you know, modern international criminal law is is the bright red thread is is politics. The, uh, you know, a tribunal or a court, uh, which I founded back in West Africa back in 2002, is a creature of political events. It's political a political compromise. Uh, a political situation such as a conflict. So, you know, politics with a small p is in the DNA, of course. So you have to be, you know, have to be ready to go, but you also have to understand that sometimes this takes a little time. You know, we're still prosecuting camp guards out of Auschwitz. So, uh, you know, uh, we, we'll, we'll make this happen. David Crane heads the Global Accountability Network. David, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. We've been hearing from people in Ukraine, those who've left the country to escape the war. Some haven't been able to contact family members. Others have seen the destruction up close. Even where there's no major destruction, hospital operations are being disrupted. Dr. Roman Fishchuk heads clinical trials at a hospital in western Ukraine, south of Lviv. He says his hospital has moved patients, canceled surgeries, and is making room in case a Russian attack leads to a sudden rush of wounded civilians. Dr. Fishchuk is with us now. Doctor, thank you for taking the time to be with us. Um, describe to us the, the, the problems that you as a, as a doctor and the environment in which you work, a hospital, is facing. You're in the western part of Ukraine, but you still have to be prepared, right? And it's still having an impact on you. Well, hello, Mike. Hello, Charles. Uh, thank you for the invitation to talk to you t- today. Well, uh, all operations everywhere in the con- in the country have been affected. And, you know, it's, we thought that we were just recovering from COVID and everything related to it. And uh, Russia attacked Ukraine. And uh, unfortunately, there is no safe place in Ukraine right now because of all the military troops surrounding the country from Russia, from Belarus. Every part of Ukraine is a target. So unfortunately, there is no safe place in the country. Some of the cities are being targeted much more than the others. But even my hometown, Ivano-Frankivsk, our airport has already been bombed three times. Uh, Fortunately, there were no injured people so far. But as you might have heard, a a military base 16 miles from Polish border was uh, heavily bombarded and uh, almost 40 people died and almost 200 people were injured. So uh, right now the the country is living, going through wartime, so everything functioning according to the military times. So yeah, everything is focused on supporting the army, the armed forces, the volunteers, uh, medical staff. And uh, yeah, so we're trying to do everything we can in order to 
finish this war as soon as possible. And what is that like in terms of the actual hospital? Have you moved people out who, you know, can be moved in case, like we said, some of the worst happens? We mentioned one of your concerns is at any point, you know, there could be bombs falling or there could be movement and you could get that that sudden rush of people with injuries. Yeah, from the first day of war, all the patients who were at the hospital who can be treated at home or who have chronic conditions, they were discharged from the hospital. And only critical patients, patients who need uh, intensive care, they are they remained at the hospital. But even in the first days, they were still in their usual departments. But because of very frequent uh, air raid sirens, they had to be moved uh, downstairs and upstairs. So in a few days, uh, a conference room and the physiotherapy department were re- refitted for intensive care patients. So now they are uh, in the basement all the time in the shelter. And uh, all planned surgeries had to be canceled. All consultations, all outpatients had to be canceled. And uh, the hospital is pretty much on standby to uh, provide health to uh, healthcare services to the wounded. And of course, uh, this war uh, is coming at a time, and you'd mentioned in passing COVID, when the pandemic is certainly not at all over. How is the war impacting the ability of your hospital and the community in which you are now to deal with, with those who get COVID, some of whom I'm imagining are going to be fairly ill, if not all? Well, absolutely. I mean, patients who have severe COVID, they are admitted to the hospital, uh, who need oxygen, who need specific treatment, treatment, who need infusions, because this cannot be provided at home or, uh, you know, with family doctors. So those who need the care, they do get it. But again, uh, the hospital access was quite restricted, both for visitors and patients themselves. I mean, this, uh, the, our clinical trial participants were really affected by this. So now we cannot do any visits for them at the hospital. So we had to come up with some backup plans. And unfortunately, the companies we work with, and these are large international companies, we consider, you know, they failed their function. They have not provided us with any backup plans, you know, risk mitigation plans, although we asked them for it. And after 2014, which was pretty much a small version of what is happening right now, I thought they would have come up with something like that, you know, for plan of actions in case this happens or this happens, but we didn't see that. When it comes to COVID and how many people are on the move, how many refugees, and we've reported on this and, and how the, the rush for among some to get out of the country, do you worry about spread in those kind of situations? And look, people have to go because they've got to go, but everyone is cramped together on trains or sometimes in, in bomb shelters. And I, I don't know what mask wearing is like there, but there could be some more spread. And this is just another effect that we're seeing here. Well, fortunately, by this time, uh, quite a lot of people were vaccinated. And even for those who were vaccinated, even if they get COVID, usually it's, you know, they have it in a mild or moderate form. But trust me, if your country is bombed, you know, your your chances of dying from a bombardment is much higher than from COVID. So, you know, first things first. And right now, the war is the first priority for everyone. Severe cases, they do get treatment at the hospitals, uh, but the rest, it's pretty much, you know, there is this dark, you know, black humor going on that the war in Ukraine cured COVID globally because not, <laughs> so, not so much people more are worry. talking about it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I'm curious, what, what is your, your particular specialty, doctor? 
I'm an ENT doctor, ear, ENT. ear nose, and throat. Okay, uh, and mm-hmm. and uh, how many roughly how many doctors are attached to the hospital that you you work in? Well, uh, the general uh, staff is about eight hundred people. Out of these eight hundred, two hundred are doctors. Okay, so the, the the question I'm getting at is, uh, do are you confident? that you and the other doctors there are equipped, I don't mean equipment, but just in in your medical knowledge and training, if needed, to deal with the kinds of casualties you can get in in a war situation, because I'm guessing that you haven't had, and maybe I'm wrong, maybe you haven't had a lot of experience in that particular area. Uh, That is a great question, to be honest. I mean, uh, we're lucky to have a good hospital administration because in the past eight years, we had regular trainings by professional organizations who came and uh, did these uh, military trainings in case of you know different accidents that could happen, including uh, war accidents. But again, these were they were done on a yearly basis or once in two years, and our hospital sent uh, on a regular basis medical staff to the east of Ukraine to provide medical care. So I think our hospital and some of our staff are more equipped and trained to deliver medical services to the wounded than the rest of the hospitals. But again, in general, I would say that, yes, we're not very equipped and well prepared for this. And for some of your colleagues in other areas, what are things like for them if if you've been able to hear about that? Uh, You know, people had to flee the places where they were working. You know, Kharkiv, I have a lot of friends from Kharkiv. They are all around the world right now. Some of them moved to Western Ukraine. Some of them stayed in Kyiv. Some of them moved to Poland. Uh, so you know, it's a right now. It's for most of the people. It's about surviving. What's the thing? What is the the thing that, as a, a physician, you worry about the most now? Uh, well, I I work on this. Ministry of Health hotline that we take calls from people from different parts of the world. And what is uh, the biggest fear for for me is that there are so many hidden victims of the war. You know, we have the casualties. People die. Civilians die. And, you know, this is something we can see. But there are so many people who need social care, who need medical care at home. And now they're left uh, alone. They are pretty much abandoned because people who took care of them moved. Some of the people who live alone, they have no one to look after them. So I fear for these people who are pretty much alone and they don't know where to get care and how to get it. Imagine also just worries about some of these cities where the supplies haven't been able to get in. And that was one of the initial things, you know, you need food, water, and then so many people need medicine. And as the humanitarian groups try their best, you know, some of these areas that they just can't get it in, or maybe it's just now starting to trickle. But for a week or two, you know, people didn't have their medication that maybe they needed to take every day. That's a disaster. I mean, it's an inhumane attitude towards people. I mean, how can you target pregnant women, maternity wards, children's hospitals. It's, you know, it's something, it's just, we don't have words for it here. It's just, we can't explain it. And and what about uh, your own family? Uh, how are they coping with this? Well, uh, we're trying to be as active as possible. My parents, they host uh, people from other places of the country. Uh, we have quite a few relatives who live uh, near Kiev uh, and uh, near Zhitomir, and these places were heavily bombed as well so they moved here they stayed 
at my parents' place for a while, then they moved abroad. Then my wife and I, we host my wife's sister right now. Then uh, my parents have a few uh, apartments in the mountains. So we have people from all around the country living, staying there as well. Uh, yeah, so pretty much we do everything we can uh, in the area we work in uh, to, again, to approach the, the day of, of victory. And how is everybody doing that, that you have you know brought in or, or given these apartments to just with the idea of not knowing how long it's going to be or if they're going to, I mean, honestly, have a home to come back to in some of these spots? Uh, everyone is very you know anxious and and sad and terrified, to be honest, because no one expected to live in an active war. And for elderly people who are in their 80s, it's pretty much they are living through the same thing for the second time. I mean, there there aren't many people who still remember the World War II, but still just a few, and there are they are just desperate. You can see them on the news. They show them. It's just they can't believe that this is happening again. And, you know, so it's, uh, uh, on one hand, people are scared and, uh, you know, of course, nervous about the war. But on the other hand, I have never seen our, you know, Ukrainians as united as they are right now, because everyone is uh, is firm that this is our country, we will win, because even in the places in the east of Ukraine, which used to be considered, you know, to be uh, pro-Russian, that most of the people are Russian-speaking, but even these days, they all say, we are Ukrainians, this is Ukraine, and we have to fight for our land and for our right to, to, to exist and to live as a, as a separate, independent country. And still, though, as you know, uh, probably three, three and a half million is the latest guess. Uh, Ukrainians have now left the country, Poland, other places. Why did you stay? Uh, well, I wasn't even thinking about staying. My When the war started, my wife was actually in Peru, but she got back. Uh, I mean, this is where we are. This is what we need, what we do. And uh, uh, we're fighting for our country, for our lives, uh, you know, and we're doing everything we can in our play, usual places, uh, you know, to help other people, to help the armed forces, you know, financially with medications, with different things, with transportation. So just, you know, uh, this is what we ha what we do and what we want to do, because this is our country. What is life like where you are now? I mean, we, we've heard from people in Lviv saying, look, there's been more air raid sirens. There's been bombs that have gotten closer uh, than in the past couple of weeks. But, you know, over the weekend, people were telling us uh, it was almost like there was a yearning for at least a slice of as normal life as you could get. People were trying to go to cafes or going out or doing something just to feel a bit normal. And then, of course, the sirens would, would happen again at night. But, but how often are, are you you know, snapped back out of or, or into reality if you, if you get that moments of, of, of peace in your day? Uh, well, you know, the air raid sirens is something, you know, we have to live with because we have them a, a few times a day usually. Sometimes they last for like five hours. But uh, now people are trying to get the business going to keep the economy up because this is really important for the country to pay taxes, to provide services. So although this is difficult, but a lot of people came here from other parts of the country. So uh, cafes have started to open up, bakeries, shops, uh, you know, and at least this is helping the country to move the economy and to fund the armed forces. So they have uh, the, 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 the resources to win this war. How do you think this ends? Well, Ukraine will win. Uh, it just, you know, we would like to have as 
as small number of victims as possible. But unfortunately, you know, it's uh, it's a in terms of victims, it's a disaster, uh, and we're very sorry that so many people have to die in this unnecessary, you know, war. Well, and so many people didn't have to die, just civilian-wise. I mean, that's that's the part that that hits that hits so hard, right? All of these places that that should not be targets that are getting targeted. And you see, if we had some better air defense systems, you know, they, we we could have avoided all this, you know, because then all the missiles could be intercepted, and all the aircraft uh, from Russia who take off from Russia or Belarus, they 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 would have been intercepted. But uh, because we don't have that, that's why a lot of civilians are dying, because Russians would just fly over Ukrainian territory and, uh, you know, drop the bombs on a, on a maternity ward or a theater where people were sheltered. And that, of course, brings us to the topic of no-fly zones, uh, because, as, as you know, uh, your president uh, repeatedly has asked uh, NATO and the U.S., uh, as recently as yesterday in his address to the U.S. Congress, to have a no-fly zone. And as you also know, uh, NATO and, and the U.S. have steadfastly refused to do that because of the concern that it would put NATO countries and the United States into a more direct confrontation with Russia. Uh, does that explanation work for you? Uh, I mean, we're grateful for all the support and help that uh, our partners have been providing us with. Uh, both military uh, equipment and spe especially the help to the refugees who are, you know, traveling to all parts of the of the globe right now. So, uh, again, we're really, really grateful for it. But uh, there is an, alter an alternative to a no-fly zone. If NATO is not willing to provide no-fly zone, then there are options of providing fighter jets, anti-aircraft systems. There are different options. But, again, uh, we need to... Uh, be uh, courageous in this uh, at this time, not only for us, because you can see how courageous our Ukrainian uh, servicemen, uh, how the army is courageous and brave. And that's what we are asking also from the international partners to be to have the courage to provide us with certain equipment, certain weapon that we can defend ourselves. All right, doctor, thank you so much for talking to us and do stay safe. That's Dr. Roman Fischuk. He heads clinical trials there at a hospital in Western Ukraine, uh, south of Lviv. Doctor, thank you again. And talking about all the family members that have come from other cities yeah. and uh, putting them up in, in, in different apartments they have and people left the country. And it's, and, and, and again, the, the message that we got from everybody else we talked to, too, everyone is doing something. And the other message that I think almost everybody we have talked to for the past, what, couple of weeks now, they all kind of wonder why we didn't either help with the no-fly zone or provide jets. And that's something that thus far, this country, our country, <clears throat> has uh, refused to do. Yeah. And the NATO chief, again, reiterating what the president did this week, saying it's, you know, that not not on the table right now. Yeah. All right. That's in depth for today. We will be back tomorrow.